Welcome to Patsy Talks. My name is Patsy, with a Z. These podcasts include interviews from my syndicated radio program, Joy on Paper, a program for writers and those who dream of writing, as well as new content focused on helping you promote your books if you are a writer, or for you readers to inspire you to write the book that is inside you, or to find new authors whose books will enrich your life. Wow, this next interview is one of my favorites. Not only was it Lee Child's birthday, it was two days after the publication of the 25th Jack Reacher book. This one, written with his younger brother, Andrew Child. It was a joy to talk to both of them. with a Z. Welcome to Joy on Paper, a program for writers and those who dream of writing and for everyone who wants to know the story behind the book. Oh boy, oh boy, what a day. This is so exciting. I have two fantastic guests on. Hello. Is, are you on? Lee? I'm here. Hi, Patsy. And Drew. Oh, wow. It's actually, it's like having four guests in one because I have Lee Child. Then I have Andrew Child, and I have Andrew Grant, and then I have Drew, which is which is how all of my listeners know you, Drew, because you and Tasha so kindly hosted the program during this pandemic-y time, and my listeners know you very well. My listeners know all about you, Drew. Um, they've heard, well, not just ha- having so much fun, you know, when you hosted the program for me, but I talk about you often. <laughs> and uh, so we, we, they have sort of a guessing game going on. We, As I told you last time, they always come up with good questions, and I've got some more questions. But both of you, it is so exciting to have you on for this uh, sort of momentous occasion. I didn't want you on pub day, but <laughs> uh, when for me, pub day, when I lived in England, was like every day, but... <laughs> uh, <laughs> wow. kind of pub there, though, Patsy, eh? Oh, yeah. Well, I, Drew knows that I bought a 400-year-old cottage when I was 21 years old in England, and we had in that town, Sonning, just outside of Henley, and there was a, a sweet shop, a butcher, and three pubs, <laughs> which is the right mix, you know? It was wonderful. Where do I start with you? You know, I'll call you Lee, although in my mind you're always Jim to me. I want to say something. It's so funny. I have literally trod in your footsteps. I spent an entire week in Manchester once doing research at the Chetham Library. And so I was walking back and forth through throughout the town and of course that's where Granada was so um whoa that was quite quite a time when was that Patsy uh that was back in uh, you were you would have been there I think it was 79 oh yeah yeah Yeah. I I was there in 79 we might have passed each other well well if I had seen you I'd probably oh tall guy there (laughs) do does anyone ever ask you how is the weather up there (laughs) Yeah, no, not anymore. My dad used to complain about that all the time because he was a tall guy, too. And he, that was a thing in his generation. But usually if people say stupid things to me, I either give them a bad look or just give them a smack and then they don't say it anymore. Uh, well, I, I, think it's, I think it's lovely. But I, I was there. Of course, the library is amazing. 
Uh, and I was doing research there, and I had a wonderful time. But of course, I've also uh, spent some time in Birmingham. I actually had a store in Birmingham once. And um, so I, w- I was wondering if you guys wanted to do this whole interview in Brummie. Well, we could if you want. You know, I can still do the voice, but you know, it's uh, and when we go to the football, we go and see the villa, and you hear it all the time there. I love the accent. Um, I think it's um, you know uh, now well, you're not exactly posh, uh, but uh, you know you've lost most of it. I think. Well, that's the accent of the sound of pollution. That's what it was. You know, uh, Birmingham, when it was a huge industrial city, and it stayed industrial for much longer than than a lot of others. And the air was so bad; everybody had these gigantic adenoids, and you had to sound like that. Well, you know, I want to play a song for you, Lee. Just a little bit of a song. Well, you know, as I said, I moved to England and I was rather obsessed with all things British. I read Jane Austen all the time. And that's why when I uh, was 21 years old, I I went to England. I bought a house uh, not far from where she was born. And one of the things as a child, I had so wanted to go to Eton. I don't know. I had it in my mind that I'd cut my hair and somehow I would get to Eton and... um, (laughs) and get a a proper education. So I was really um, shocked to discover that King Edward VI school, where you went, rates way above Eton. Yeah, Eton is rubbish, you know. Eton's for boys, and they're all pretty thick, and the education they get out is is awful. I mean, all you've got to do is look at the prime minister. He He comes from Eton. And uh, he's thick as a brick and can't do anything. King Edward VI is is an amazing school, of course, founded in 1552, which, you know, for Americans, like, <laughs> so hard to believe. Tell us a little bit uh, about your school days, because one of the things that you have certainly lived up to their school song, because very few, <laughs> very few, few people live up to their school song. C- can you still sing it? Part of it, yeah, where the iron hearts, of England beats, uh, something like that. But yes. yeah, when I, I mean, I'm very old. You're not getting us on pub day. We're two days late, but you are getting me on my birthday. Oh, and, well. I, and, and that reminds me of how very old I am. And well, so my, my education was kind of a previous generation thing. It was still the classical English model where you learn Latin, you learn Greek, anything in terms of history, anything after the year 1485, was considered kind of dangerously modern, not quite <laughs> settled yet, practically journalism. And so that it was super, super classical, which was uh, useless mostly, but actually, you know, a lot of fun and it gives you a tremendous uh, grounding in, in, in a lot of philosophy and a lot of um, language. You know, we know where words come from and all that kind of thing. So overall... Um, my elementary school was the thing that really taught me what I needed to know, reading, writing, and arithmetic. And if I'd left school when I was 10, I would have been fine. I would have gotten through life perfectly well. The rest of it was just icing on the cake. But it is, you're right, I mean, the, the age of that school 
But you ought to ask Andrew about the age of his school. But the age of my school is impressive to Americans. I, I was once accosted by a very snobby woman whose grandson had just gotten into one of those New England academies. And she was uh, all very, very impressed by it. And she asked me, where did I go to school, thinking it would be some, you know, public school, CS6 uh, in the Bronx or something like that. And I said, ma'am, the school I went to is 224 years older than the United <laughs> States. And that, that shut her up. It, it does. It's so funny. And when I was looking at your school song, it says, where the iron heart of England throbs beneath its somber robe stands a school whose sons have made her great and famous round the globe. Well, you have lived up to that for sure. And it goes on to say, these have plucked the boys of battle. Those have won the scholar's crown. Old Edwardians, young Edwardians, forward for the school's renown. And what do you yell at the end of that? I have, I have no recollection. I probably was... Fame, um, fame. It is fame. <laughs> I was probably smoking behind the bicycle. Well, at the end of that line, you're supposed to sing some of fame. And I thought, well, if anybody has lived, you are like around the globe. You are so famous. And of course, my goodness gracious, the new book. Oh, we have to mention that you have a new book out. That's why you're on the program, I guess. Uh, I, but I'd have you on the program all the time. I don't care if you have a new book. Um, it's called The Sentinel, and it is the 25th book of the Jack Reacher series, and the first one that you, well, first for for, for Drew, and a number one bestseller, of course. It was, I think it was number one bestseller, you know, months ago. So it's a thrilling time to be talking to you on your birthday and when you've had this wonderful accomplishment you're passing the baton it's it's amazing isn't it it is i mean 25 books is, a, is uh, fantastic if, if back at the beginning somebody had said to me you know this is going to carry on for 25 books and then even more than that i would have thought they're crazy you know, you know what show business is like you cannot predict anything you can't be sure of any kind of success it is all a gamble and to to come out on the on top is amazing. <laughs> Statistically, it's very unlikely, uh, but fortunately, it happened, and here we are. And here we are at, at, at a very significant point. You know, and, and instead of retiring from Granada Television and uh, going on national <laughs> national health, here you are <laughs> living in Wyoming and uh, famous around the globe. <laughs> it is pretty amazing when you think about it. I, it is. It's wonderful. I have to say to Drew, you know, Drew, as I said, my my listeners know, know about you because I talk about you and Tasha all the time. And um, I haven't had very many people come to my house during this, this pandemic-y time. But I have a, a young girl who's coming and she's helping me sort the books. And uh, I have like 3,500 of them. So she's helping me organize them. I had up the cover of your school magazine, St. Albans. And there you are on the cover of Versa. And she doesn't know anything really about me except she sees that I have a lot of books about kings and queens and, and you know, royalty. And she, she sort of walks past that cover and she said, well, which king is that? <laughs> Well, I like how she thinks. You've got to keep her on, definitely. Exactly, I, because that is a beautiful cover. 
It was. It was amazing to see that. You know, you, you were saying about, about Lee with his, uh, you know, what's happened since leaving school for him. And, you know, when I was at school, you know, somebody had said to me one day, um, you'd be on the front of that magazine. Um, I, I would have just thought they were they were smoking crack. I would have thought it was the most ridiculous thing I'd ever heard of. So uh, for it to happen was uh, was was pretty incredible. Although um, you know it's right it's right up there with um, when uh, I got actually got mentioned in the in the match day program at Aston Villa. You know you were talking about when we go back to Birmingham and uh, one time I think a good friend of mine um, from the Chicago Lions pulled some strings and uh, got them to put a little feature in the in the program and again that that's the sort of thing as a little kid going to the villa uh, somebody had said one day you'll be in the program i'd have said no you are completely insane that will never happen and that it turned out so beautifully i mean you, you look you really do look like a king and after that i had to look at it and i had said yeah you know he does, he does look I do, the photographer did an amazing job she did, and I mean that—that's not the newest of pictures. I have to confess, <laughs> and the photographer was fantastic. Um, she's in Brooklyn. She's called Carrie Schechter, and she—I uh, mean, she did have to take something in the region of like twenty-five thousand photographs to get one that came out, you know, even remotely palatable. But uh, she did an amazing job too to uh, to get anything that we could use because I hate having my photo taken. But she did a—you know—she did a great job, and it's been amazing to see where that picture has showed up over the years. Right, it's, it's better than a cover on. Time magazine. I really, it is. It's just, it's fantastic. Uh, which reminds me, Lee, have you been on the cover of Time magazine yet? Uh, time, no. I haven't been. I mean, I could make a fake one like the president, <laughs> but I haven't actually been on the uh, on the real one. I've been on a few others, but uh, and I think I've probably missed my chance now because I, I I'm stepping back. It will be Andrew who's on Time magazine probably next year or the year after. Well, I think uh, you would be a good choice for them because um, it could be now that we're going to have the streaming video of the Jack Reacher saga. Um, So this is maybe the right time for you now because this is taking you back into this lovely world of television. It is fun to work in television. It really is. I mean, this is what people uh, don't know who don't do that. The people that work in television and in movies, they are crazy, but in a good way. All they want to do is make a better show, tell a better story, and they will do what it takes to get there. And to be around people like that is very inspiring. You know, you don't have to explain yourself. You don't have to push them or cajole. They want to do it anyway. So it is a great process. Of course, we are... Uh, delayed because of the pandemic. We're not not able to start shooting when we wanted to. That is uh, put off for a few months. But it's going to happen, and it's looking really, really good. Uh, screenplays are fantastic. The casting is great. Um, the mood is very happy. Everybody's going to really enjoy it, I think. Well, I think to be on a set, no matter what your position, when you're on a set of a television production, a movie production, it's a world that is so exciting. You, it almost takes your breath away. You, you're there. You could be doing the simplest thing, and you say, "Oh my goodness, I'm here!" And it, it just it is really exciting. So I can see, you know, those years that you were were at Granada and that you were doing some really, really great programs. I mean, some of the best, um, like Brides Had Revisited and uh, Jewel of the Crown. Did you know that Jewel of the Crown was Stephen King's favorite book? 
Is that right? No, yeah. I didn't know that. Did you know that? That's when he was asked uh, many times, he would say, Jewel of the Crown. And I, it, so isn't it wonderful, all these sort of threads that link us? Uh, you never thought, for example, when you started um, a band <laughs> or a rock group or whatever you called it, called Dark Tower, uh, that one day you'd be pals with Stephen King. I know, isn't it, isn't it remarkable? I used to read Stephen like a fan. And now we hang out, we go to the Boston Red Sox. I mean, I do that as a favor to him, because <laughs> who, who would want to do that otherwise? But, um, yeah, it's amazing the way things come around. John Grisham, for instance, uh, who I started out as a, a reader, really admiring him. I think he's a way better writer than people give him credit for. I was always a fan. Now he's a friend. It is amazing what happens. And, of course, uh, let's talk... Just a little bit about some of the people you worked with at Granada, because you you work with some really great people like Jeremy Irons and and uh, just throw a few names in there. What what was Claire Bloom like? What, tell us a little bit. Well, you know, we were it was a, it was a huge production, all of those dramas, obviously, but it was a very democratic thing that we had a canteen like a cafeteria where everybody ate, and you would be uh, standing in line. You know, maybe Claire Bloom's in front of you, and Jeremy Irons or Anthony Andrews is behind you. And I think when you're at the level of making a program, you know, you're down in the weeds, and you're doing it shot by shot and line by line, everybody understands that they're just workers, the same as everybody else. And so it was very equal, and it was a lot of fun. The ones that uh, I really got to know best were the ones that were there all the time. Uh, we had a soap opera running. It's maybe the longest-running TV soap opera ever. It started in 1961 called Coronation Street. Oh, oh and, yes. Um, those people were like total workmates to us. We had a lot of fun with them. And uh, who else would there be? The other thing that there was at Granada that people forget about, the drama was fantastic, but there was also serious documentary stuff, some real serious journalists. And they were fun as well because, you know, they were involved in, in things that were, we were threatened by the government sometimes about things we were revealing. And uh, that made it very dramatic, very exciting. You felt embattled. It was you against the world. And uh, Granada was relatively small back then, certainly in terms of the management structure. When I first started, I was a young trainee, and there was only like two levels of management between me and the chairman. And so the whole thing was a family. It was wonderful. One of the productions, I don't know if it was done during your time, it was when um, it was called The Christians, and Bamber Gascoigne was the narrator. Yeah, Bamber, uh, he, he also was the presenter for a show called University Challenge, oh. which was the, you know, that was the British equivalent of College Bowl, and it was, he was erudite. And he always wore a corduroy jacket, you know, like he was. He just came out. Of oh, I love him! I love him. There, were, there are only really there are only two. I never know. Do you prefer to be called an Englishman or a Brit? Which, I'm a citizen of the world. Well, I, I know, no, but I, be, I belong nowhere. Generally, do I Englishmen belong, like to be called Englishmen or do they like to be called Brits? Well, really, you know, my dad was from Northern Ireland, which is the final part of the United Kingdom. It's not even part of Great Britain. 
So I, I would say I'm a UK citizen. A UK citizen. Well, I used to love University Challenge so much. Were you? Neither one of you were in your uni's uh, team for <laughs> for the uni- for University <laughs> Challenge. No, neither of us were particularly brightly shining lights, I don't think, during our university well, days. Well, b- because you both, <laughs> both went to the University of Sheffield, and um, but I don't believe they've ever won it. Um, I think they may, might have placed or something, but I, 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 I mean, used to watch it. Our problem was that it was, it was shot during the day, and that made it impossible for us because uh, we were asleep all day and up all night, so uh, we missed it. But what they do, just before Christmas every year, they do a kind of alumni tournament you know or celebrity anybody who's graduated and become famous is invited to go back and compete and i get asked every year and it's a real dilemma i mean it's really it's an impossible choice it's a sort of lose-lose proposition suppose you go on the show and look like a total idiot uh, you don't want to do that but bamber Gascoigne managed to make everybody <laughs> he didn't make fun of them when they, when they didn't uh, answer the question right and as an American of course for me um, it was it was a real challenge because of so many of the things that I mean I, I had no idea what he was talking about but I did love every once in a while that I would I would get something right and um, I, I remember one time uh, one of the questions was um, he asked um, something about where Ovid was born, and I knew it because I had studied Latin in high school. Not, you know, I was never as proficient as I'm sure you were, Lee, because you, you studied it at a younger age, which uh, there's no reason, you know, this is what drives me crazy, um, because if a, a young kid from Birmingham can study Latin and Greek, why is nobody in America studying Latin and Greek? Um you know, so and it does help the mind. I believe it helps your your mind enormously. So, but I just if I would love to meet him. I, he's still alive. You know, I don't know if you know him, but um, he, he's he's one of my favorite people. I haven't talked to him for years, but obviously I knew him when he was there, and he was a very sweet guy. And you're quite right that he would ask these questions that were virtually impossible to answer, and one of the students would get it wrong, and he would look at them with that sympathetic look yeah. as if to say. How how could you not know that? Yeah, but um, he didn't make them feel really, really. He didn't. He's replaced. He retired, and, and I'm never sure why. I'm never sure why he gave it up. But he retired, and now there's a guy called Jeremy Paxman does it, and he's a little bit more scathing when they get it wrong. He's a little more combative. <laughs> Exactly. So I love the name Bamber. I just I think it's a, such a cool name. I thought somebody has to name a character. Oh, one of you have to. Well, now now it's it's up to Drew. Drew has to use the name Bamber in in honor because it's it's you know it's he is something he is really something special. And I would love to say I'd love his telephone number. I'll call him up and say I love you because I think he's so great. Um, of course, the other one and Drew is well aware. You know, Harry Kane is sort of a passion and my in my household um but uh, speaking of soccer uh the two of you which teams do you follow we both follow aston villa uh, well <laughs> what can yeah. i say so, you know, tottenham, uh, tottenham we have tottenham we have we have like a, a one of these 30 foot long scarves <laughs> i don't know <laughs> none of us could wear it it's it would wrap around us like a dress, but we have it because uh, we we watch any th- time Harry Kane is on. We are 
glued to the telly. Well, Andrew Sparsu politely to point out that Tottenham last won the league seven years before Andrew was born. Well, we, we live in hope. It's sort of like I do with the Detroit Tigers. <laughs> they, are not, they, are not, they are not going to win. But every year, you know, I just get this hope. I thought maybe because of the pandemic and nobody's playing very much. You know, I yeah. thought maybe everybody else would be eliminated and at the end the Tigers would. And, but You know what they say with sports, though? It's the hope that kills you. So you've got to be careful with that. Uh, well, but with the pandemic, it's been really interesting. I, was, I, was re- I used to have lots of discussions with my father-in-law about this concept of home field advantage, you know, because he was a very data-driven person. And um, you would always hear about how it was an advantage to play at home. And, um, you know, he wanted proof. So, um, you know, the pandemic right now, you know, all of the main uh, soccer leagues in Europe um, are playing without spectators in the stadium stadium at the moment. And um, I forget the number, but there has been an amazing reduction in the number of times that the home team wins. Um, the number of away victories has gone up enormously. And, you know, I think that's, that's a fascinating side product of the pandemic, you know, causing teams to play without the fans there. Well, you know, I always ask my uh, listeners if they have questions. And, you know, my listeners, many of my listeners, of course, are mystery writers and writers in general because I encourage writers. And um, one of them, and, the, and they're, sometimes they're very good at research. And so one of them wants to know, and this is uh, for you, Drew. Mm-hmm. Did you uh, perform nude <laughs> in, in one of the Edinburgh... Uh, festivals that you produced? Well, that is a fantastic question. I've never been asked anything like that before. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's putting some very alarming pictures in my head right now. But, um, you know, it's fair to say that we did have two shows at Edinburgh. um, um, And I I didn't even set foot on stage. I I was the producer and person who kind of made all the organization and the one who upset everybody by, uh, you know, insisting that they uh, showed up on time and stuff like that. But uh, no, no, no nudity from me. Okay. You'll, be, you'll be pleased to hear. Okay. Well, I, I don't know. I think, I think maybe she was trying to Google a photo of you <laughs> participating in, in that festival, because that was one of the things that you did after you finished uni and you, you became a... Um, I don't know, you produce things and did you work in London or just Edinburgh? What, what, what did you do in, in well, we were We were based in Sheffield where we'd, where we'd been to university and so we did a lot of shows in the Sheffield and Yorkshire area but we also toured the UK a couple of times and we did two shows at the, at the Edinburgh Festival and the thing I remember most clearly from that was that one of the shows we did was, was a sort of, it was very physical, there was lots of you know, people being flung on the ground and leaping on the ground and rolling about on the ground. So at the stage set, primarily, it was cut. We, we had lots of the special foam material that we laid down on the stage and then covered it with a kind of tarpaulin that was all painted in a special way. And, um, you know, they were very safety conscious anytime, anywhere where there's a public performance. So we had to have all kinds of certificates showing that we had the correct kind of foam that wouldn't burn and all of this. And on the, on the day before our first performance, 
performance. We'd taken all of our stuff up to Edinburgh, and we had it. The, the venue had a, a room that everybody could use for storing their stuff. And the fire department decided to do a random inspection, so they showed up. And I thought, well, this is no problem. I've got all the certificates, you know. So I, I start pulling out all this paperwork, and this enormous Scottish fire chief just sneers at this paperwork as if it's the most ridiculous thing he's ever seen in his life. He pulls out a Zippo lighter and proceeds to try to you know, light my stage set on fire because that's, that's his proof of whether it's actually flammable or not. He doesn't care what it says on a piece of paper. So I remember standing there with my heart in my mouth and this, this guy trying to light my, uh, all my equipment on fire. But fortunately, it didn't burn, so we were, we were all good. But, you know, that's one of my abiding memories. The other one was um, we, we finished our performance one night and, um, you know, the, the, the crew and the cast, if anything, if there was a problem, if anything was broken or not, working properly they were supposed to tell me so I could have I could fix it and one guy had broken this this long wooden stave that we needed in, in like a kind of fight scene only he hadn't told me about it until like 10 minutes before the show um, it, it finally dawned on him that maybe we might need to replace it so he told me so I actually ended up I had 10 minutes to get another long piece of wood so I, I actually I climbed over a fence into a into a construction site next to the next to the venue and stole a piece of wood off the uh, off this uh, construction project and took that back and that's what we used for the rest of the show. <laughs> well, that's a producer for you. You, you. you overcome things, that's for sure. You know, Lee, there's something really funny. As I was talking about the threads that connect us all in, in so many ways, and since I started this program, there have been so many magical threads um, that have connected me to the authors and, and the people who I have spoken to. And some of them are silver, and of course you guys are golden threads. Um, one of them is that I started Joy on Paper on March 17th, St. Patrick's Day in 2015. Uh-huh. And you started Jack Reacher on St. Patrick's Day. That was the very first publication, yes. St. Yeah. Patrick's Day, 1997. That was when uh, Killing Floor came out. And uh, I wish I'd paid more attention to it, really, because, you know, when you're... When you're into your next book at that point and thinking about the future. And I, I should have just chilled that day and uh, enjoyed it more. I kind of have very little recollection of it, but I, and I wish I'd paid more attention. So there we are both. Uh, it, it turned out to be St. Patrick's turned out to be lucky for both of us. And March 17th turned out to be lucky for both of us. Because here I am, I'm still going. I don't know how strong, but I'm still going. And of course, uh, for Jack Reacher, tell me, do you have that handwritten? I think you wrote it in pencil, the first book. I do. What happened was, to me, it was extraordinary, but there was a university in the UK called University of East Anglia, which is roughly the equivalent of Iowa State. You know, Iowa State is like the writer's university in America. Uh, East Anglia is in Britain. And they asked, would I donate all my archives, you know, all those old manuscripts and so on. So now it's actually in a kind of museum in Norwich in England. And, of course, that's The Killing Floor, your very first one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And when you look back on it, when you sat down and wrote it, how much did that first page change? I've made one false start, and uh, you, can, you, know, you can see it. There's a short sort of four-line paragraph at the beginning that is crossed out. 
because I wasn't happy with it. Then I launched into it in a different way, and that never changed. And since then, I have never changed an opening because I think that the the first line, the first paragraph, it's so pure. It's uh, the first line is unique in a book. It's the only line that does not follow another line. So it can be anything. And I feel like the genuine, authentic first paragraph, as you first wrote it, is always the best. So I have never changed an opening uh, since that very first book. Well, my favorite, I love so many of your openings, but my favorite, I think, still is the opening of The Persuader. And that, yeah. I love that opening. Uh, it, it starts, the cop climbed out of his car exactly four minutes before he got shot. And I remember, because I started shouting, I started shouting, sit back down, <laughs> close the door. <laughs> Don't. And so when you're already in the first line, I mean, it was, I, and I read it again, I said, the cop climbed out of his car exactly four minutes before he got shot. And I remember I, I took a deep breath and I really, I wanted him to sit back in the car, close the window, drive away, get out. <laughs> you really grabbed the reader with that one. That was a risky opening, though, because it's, you know, as you said, it's about a cop getting shot. And it's a reacher that shoots the cop. And eventually you figure out, you know, it's an elaborate deception. It's a scam. But you don't know that for about 30 pages. I know. You've got Reacher shooting a cop and doing these terrible things. And if you make it through 30 pages, you think, oh, okay, yeah, right, I see. But it gives a terrible impression of Reacher for the, for the first bit. And I, it was a risk. It was a high wire. You know, what, it, it was going to be a great reveal at the end of the chapter, but people are going to thoroughly disapprove of him all the way through. Well, I thought that was a great opening. Uh, Drew, do you have a favorite opening of, of the books? Because you must have gone back. Now, I know you read them as they came out, uh, and you read started from day one with the very first book. But as you sort of reviewed them, did you notice to this the strength of these opening pages? And it is so important to grab the reader with that first page. Absolutely, you know, and, and um, not only have I always loved them, um, because you know the, the thing, you know, the, the center of gravity shifted so much. Because up until, um, in fact, it was even after I'd read Blue, Blue Moon, um, I was lucky to get a pre-publication copy of Blue Moon. So I'd read all twenty-four of them purely as a Reacher fan before the idea of, of, of uh, joining in with the writing ever came along. So you know, I was always aware of how fantastic the opening lines were, and. And then, of course, when I had to come up with one, it made the stakes a little bit higher. But I think one of my favorites, I would go with um, the beginning of Make Me, which um, Make Me starts with moving a guy as big as Kiva wasn't easy. I just thought, you know, immediately, you know, you want to know more. What, you know, what, who's Kiva? Why wasn't it easy? You know, it, it's just so, it, it just grabs you and pulls you in, and then it never lets go until you get to the very end. So, yeah, the opening line is, um, is an amazingly important thing. I remember writing that, actually, and it was, it just seemed like a good line, and I had no idea. The questions that Andrew just asked, I had no idea what the answers were. Who is Kiva? I don't know. Why, why is moving him hard? I don't know. But it just sounded like a great line, and then you build the story on top of that. And that's exactly how you write. I mean, you're, you don't plan a lot. You let the story take you away? 
Yeah, I don't plan at all. I just let, I just wait and see what happens. Like real life, you know, none of us knows what's going to happen. And so you just go with the flow and see what turns up. And uh, I've always found it a great way to do it. It keeps me interested. I sit down to write with exactly the same emotion that I hope the reader is going to feel, which is, oh, wow, what's going to happen next? I genuinely don't know, and I'm genuinely excited about it. I have a question inspired by the girl who's sorting my books. And this is, if because both of you, of course, love theater, and you must have participated in theater at your schools. What are your favorite parts if you were going to play a part in, in a Shakespeare play? Oh, wow. You know, if I was being egotistical, I would say I want to be Prospero out of the Tempest, uh, you know, the the boss pulling all the strings with all these um, sprites and spirits under his command. I would love that. And Drew? Um, uh, Not Romeo? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so, so I would, if, if I was oh, going to pick sorry. one, I, I would actually say Henry V, and, you know, not because of the, you know, the battlefield scenes or the, you know, once more into the breach or anything like that. The thing that really grabbed me in that play was, um, remember, there's a, they call it the Southampton plot. You've got these, these guys that are secretly working for the French who are kind of secret agents trying to infiltrate Henry's operation. And um, they are due to become commissioned officers. So there's a ceremony where the king hands people their, their royal warrants. And so um, he hands out the warrants to all of these people who are going to be commissioned, only he actually knows who the traders are. So when they open theirs, they're not, they're not commissions at all. They're death warrants. <laughs> and uh, I just love that scene, you know, because it's classic drama because you, you, you're led to believe that the king is in terrible peril because these traitors are about to ascend to this position of power. And so you're, you're terrified for the king. You're rooting for him. You're thinking, no, this is awful. And then it turns out that he was a step ahead all along. He knew and he took care of business. And I just love that. You know, and that's been used, that motif has been used over and over and over, even to the point, um, he was talking about um, Coronation Street, that soap opera, but there was another one called EastEnders. And two of the heroes, there was Dirty Den and his wife who, were, who ran the pub. And... Um, they, they, you know, Dan was always, you know, off with other women doing the doing the dirty, and he, uh, his wife wanted to reconcile, and she'd gone to all of these lengths to sort of lure him back. And the idea was that you thought she'd succeeded; they were going to have this lovely romantic Christmas together, and then on Christmas Eve, um, she said, "Why don't we just give each other our cards and presents now?" So Dan pulled, you know, she gave Dan this lovely present and romantic card. Dan handed her her card. Only it wasn't a card, it was divorce papers. <laughs> and I remember watching that and thinking, they make that from Shakespeare. But, um, you know, it's, it, I, I love that. I love that reverse, you know, because you're so emotionally invested. So therefore, the, the payback is so great when you discover that uh, things are okay after all. That reminds me of the pub. Um, as I said, we had three pubs in our little town. And, of course, everybody has the pub that they go to. I mean, you, you pick uh, eventually you pick one that you go to all the time. And I thought it was so lovely. It came as a surprise to me, of course, when I first went to England, that um, 
the pubs closed <laughs> after lunch and and but everybody would meet out there we'd be out there you know waiting for the pub to open in the afternoons and it was really nice and of course people would be commenting on what that the pub owner was doing upstairs uh, but <laughs> but somehow that gin and tonic when you were waiting for it was really so much oh it just tasted so much better than one that you got if you just walked in Absolutely, and that you know that is a, that is such a key aspect of human nature, isn't it? You know, if if you can get something too easily, then you don't really value it. But if you have to wait for it, and um, you know that's that's like for me, that's like that was always like waiting for the next Reacher to come out. You know, um, it was that sense of anticipation, and then the, you know the, the 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 reward when it came was was that much more gratifying. So I know exactly what you mean. Well, the big anticipation, of course, in England was having morning telly. <laughs> I remember the, the the sweet lady in the sweet shop. They were so she was so excited that there would be telly in the morning, and then she decided at at one point she said, "But then you know it could be the end of civilization." <laughs> <laughs> well, we I remember, I always I remember that. that we had. We, you know, the breakfast television was introduced, and uh, I remember Andrew saying to me, "What do you mean introduced? Six o'clock evening news? That's my breakfast television. It's <laughs> always been there." <laughs> exactly. I was going to say, "There's always TV on when I woke up." Yeah. <laughs> For an American, the idea of not having morning television because we always had morning television—it was so funny. I, I thought it was so quaint. <laughs> I loved it. It was, but our, our version was. The uh, radio, you know, BBC Radio in the morning was was the equivalent, and and that still is a wonderful thing. Um, and people do that, you know, they listen in the kitchen while they're getting ready, and then they listen in the car while they're going to work. And um, that was a, that filled a spot for me. Breakfast television itself, you know, the sofa format is nice, but it doesn't tell you much. Uh, I'm still a, a fan of the radio for that. I agree. Which reminds me, you were on BBC the other day. Which one we of were, you? We were, yeah. Both of us. Both of us were. And, you know, because we're out in out west on mountain time, uh, breakfast time in Britain was 2 a.m. for us. So we were up late, and um, I don't know what we looked like. I mean, it, it must have looked like we had had a rough night or something because uh, it wasn't actually morning for us. It was late evening. And they didn't do any brummy jokes on you? No, they didn't. You know, what they did, the BBC is so uh, thorough that they did a research call and um, beforehand, and they said, do you mind if we ask you silly questions like uh, which one of you is better looking, which one of you is smarter, and all of that. But they actually didn't do that. Because they never do. Whatever they say on their research call, you can be sure they're not going to do in the show. It's a weird thing. I don't know why it works like that. Well, you know, I'm, I'm going to play a little game here. I, I wanna, I'm going to say two names, and I want you each to tell me which one you prefer. And this is sort of a personality test. Okay, if you... If, <laughs> two names. Tolstoy Dostoevsky. If you, you know, are stuck in an apartment for a week with, where you can only have a choice uh, because of the pandemic, which one? Tolstoy Dostoevsky. I'm going to vote for Dostoevsky. I mean, much as I love Tolstoy, I think the edge and the hardness and the intrigue in Dostoevsky is much closer to my heart than, uh, you know, Tolstoy's fabulous, huge, sweeping sagas and all of that. But you need the focus, I think, of Dostoevsky. Drew? 
Yeah, I would I would go with that as well. Um, a few years ago, when Tasha was writing a book set in um, in Saint Petersburg, we um, we went to visit, and you know the one in Russia, not the one in in Florida. And um, we, one of the things we did was we went to Dostoevsky's apartment because it's, it's been turned into a museum. And there were two fantastic things we saw. One of them was, um, well, you know, you were asking Lee about the the, the original manuscript for Killing Floor, you know, with the crossed out first paragraph. Well, you would not believe the state of the first manuscript. It might not even have been the first one. It might have been maybe the third or fourth one for Crime and Punishment. It was covered in crossings out and scribblings in the margin. It was unbelievable. But the other thing, while we were there, we we thought, um, you know, because you're always looking for similarities with other writers, and what we discovered was that Dostoevsky, when he wrote, <clears throat> he couldn't really get his act together very much until quite late in the day, so he would stay up really late at night writing, that he smoked constantly, and that he was obsessed with really beautiful paper. So what we realized is that's actually an amalgamation of Tasha, May, and Lee. <laughs> <laughs> okay, here's, here's a good one. P.J. Woodhouse or James Joyce? Yeah, no, honestly, I'm going to say neither. I can't. I mean, James Joyce is just incomprehensible to me. <laughs> like every other human on the planet, I've tried to get some meaning out of Ulysses and failed. And Woodhouse, to me, is too silly, too trivial, uh, too English in a way that is outdated and was fundamentally flawed to start with. So I'm going to reject both of them. Oh, well, so you're going to sit in this penthouse with uh, no books. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that sounds, I think that's the way because, you know, my, my initial reaction was, well, I can't go with Joyce because I don't understand it. But then, yeah, you, Woodhouse is a, is a dodgy one to, to bring in as, a, as an alternative. But I did hear a great story about Joyce once. He was, because, um, um, he he was you know he used to hang out with Samuel Beckett a fair bit, <clears throat> and apparently one time he was miserable and depressed, and, and Beckett said, "So what's the problem? Why why are you so down?" And, and Joyce said, "Well, I only managed to, I only wrote five words today," <laughs> and and Beckett said, "Yeah, but for you that's a lot," <laughs> and um, Joyce said, "Yeah, but I'm I'm pretty sure they're in the wrong order." <laughs> you could put them in any order you wanted. Now notice notice one thing. Nice. I said Woodhouse because when I first went to England, because I learned in I lived in northern Michigan, nobody had certainly ever heard of P.J. Woodhouse. And I pronounced it all the time for years. I thought it was Woodhouse. And when I got to Guildford and I said, where, where is, where is Woodhouse's house? People sort of laughed at me. So it's Woodhouse. Um, I, I would take him. At, at least I, I, I can imagine having Jeeves, and I, I, I rather enjoy that. You know, that part, that, that part of England, for an American, that's a thrill. And one more. This is the final one, because we don't have much time. Hemingway or Fitzgerald? For me, I would say probably Hemingway, because uh, I'm super dubious about Hemingway, to be honest, but it, I, 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 I admire the, the concise language, the, the short, direct sentences. I, I see a lot of virtue in him, as well as a lot of silliness in him. Uh, you know, that whole macho thing, constantly wrestling with giant fish and all of that. If I want to fish, I go to the shop. You know, why do all the work yourself? And if you want macho, you have Jack Reacher's <laughs> and soon to be a streaming video. And, and what about you, Drew? Yeah, I think I think the same for the same kind of reasons, because, um, you know, I, I prefer the sort of the, you know, I think there's a, 
uh, I like that you know that not you can't say this for every book, um, and there are some where you've got quite a few distractions in there. But I, you know, it's generally that much grittier, and 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 um, you know that kind of appeals to me. I think. But I remember going to Hemingway's house on Key West once, and I was amazed because they had um, they, they had this huge business going where you could you could have your wedding there. And I, I remember thinking, so we, you know, which part of, of the Hemingway legend is is attracting people to get married here? Is it the is it the multiple divorces? Is it the suicide? You know, <laughs> what is it that makes you think Hemingway is a good thing to associate yeah, with? That's, your that's wedding? not exactly my idea of a destination wedding. My idea of a destination wedding is Venice, and Tasha Alexander is going to have a book out in March. Whoa! Tell us about that. For we have one minute. Yes, yeah, so her next book, it's actually Florence, this one. It was her, oh, well, yeah, she, she did, she did Venice, she, yeah, she did Venice before. This one is set in Florence, and it's fantastic. As usual, she's got two timelines running. And so she has Lady Emily arrive, um, once again shut out from her husband Colin's investigation, which gets off to a very dubious start when a body flies off the roof of a building. So Emily sets out to run her own parallel investigation. And um, the reason for this, this body, this person being murdered in the early 20th century, links back to what she discovers about things that happened in the 15th. So it's going to be, you know, it's one of those beautiful stories where each, each, each subsequent chapter interlaps with the one before. And um, the picture that you end up building is not the one that you think you're going to when you begin. Yes. Well, of course, I knew it was Florence because that is another perfect destination for a wedding. But nobody's having any destination weddings in Europe right now or anywhere for that matter, because we're not supposed to go anywhere. But you guys are very lucky to be living in Wyoming, land of the open skies, where you have beautiful stars every night, fresh, clean weather, and wonderful air. Do you ride horses or drive Land Rovers? <laughs> we, we tend to drive, honestly. There are horses here, but um, none of them are ours. And um, the last time I went on a horse was in 1978 in Scotland, and I fell off after about 30 seconds. So uh, it would take quite something to get me back on a horse. Well, actually, I've never, I've never been on a horse. I've seen one once, but I've never been on one. Well, you know, if you lived in the 1870s, you guys would have had to go either to India, um, you know, or you would have to come to the West uh, in America, and then you would have had to learn how to ride a horse. Uh, but, uh, geez, this is wonderful. Look, they're playing my music. I'm out of here. You're out of here. I want to thank you both, Lee Child and Andrew Child. And just thank you so much. The new book is The Sentinel. We don't have to talk a lot about it. We know Jack Reacher is going to just do a lot a lot of interesting stuff, uh, some fights and all sorts of exciting stuff. You guys did a great job. Thank you so much for being on Joy on Paper today. It's been a joy to talk to you. Well, absolutely. Our pleasure, Patsy. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye now. And uh, I'll, you never know. Lee, you might decide to write a kid's book and you'll be back. Okay. You never know. You never know. Okay. And good luck. Well, I'm going to be watching the streaming video. So bye-bye now. Bye. Okay. I don't have time for anything more. We're out of here. This was a big show. One hour of Lee Child and Andrew Child, or as I like to call him, Drew, because they are wonderful. And I'm just so, so thrilled that they gave me an entire hour. Bye-bye now. This has been a joy on paper. A real joy today. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining me. To find out more about Patsy Talks 
or my radio program, Joy on Paper, visit my website, www.radio-joyonpaper.com or follow me on Facebook at Radio Joy on Paper. If you have a question or a suggestion, send me an email at patsy.podcast at gmail.com.